Well, good morning again. Our uh, reading this morning is continuing in our series in Genesis, and we are picking up Genesis 8, verse 20. This is after the flood. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hands they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will, rec- I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Let's skip down to verse 12. And this is the sign of the covenant that I will make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the, heaven, over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. It's God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, uh, there's a lot to learn in this passage, as there is in seemingly every passage in Genesis. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we need you to speak to us by your word. We need your spirit to illuminate it, and most of all, to drive home the grace of Jesus in our hearts, in our lives. We ask that you would do this, because you are a good Father who loves us and watches over us, and because the grace of Jesus is sufficient for all of us. So we ask that you would do it in his name. Amen. It's, uh, it's hard to be patient, isn't it? It was, uh, it's kind of hard for most of us. It's hard when you're a kid. It's weird having a uh, Saturday Halloween because the whole day was just waiting and waiting for, to go trick-or-treating. I don't even know how my kids felt. I'm just talking about myself. But the, uh, you're just waiting all day, right? And you know that feeling when you're waiting for Christmas to come. You're waiting for all these, other, all these good things to come. Uh, 
you might be familiar with the marshmallow test in the, uh, in the 70s. Some Stanford psychologists had a group of kids that they got together, and they put a marshmallow in front of them, of each kid. And they told them, you can eat the marshmallow if you want, but if you wait for 15 minutes, you'll get a second marshmallow, and then you can eat both of them. And then they leave the room for 15 minutes, and you can, you know, you can find footage of this, right? The kids are, you know, some of the kids try to distract themselves. They recognize what's going on. You know, give them credit, right? They're trying to look away. Other, you know, most of the kids are fixated on the marshmallow. And trying not, some are trying not to touch it. Some, of course, are playing with it. Some start licking it. Some start nibbling on it. Of course, you know, a few kids just can't last, you know. So, you know, supposedly this test was, was going to tell you, uh, you know, if you had, even as a young age, if you were able to sort of defer gratification, you're going to be more successful in life. And apparently it's actually been disproven or at least challenged in different ways um, by modern studies. But what is so funny about it, what is so interesting to see is, the, is how hard it is to be patient. Um, it's hard to be patient when you're a kid. It's hard to be patient when you're an adult. You mask it a little better, maybe, when you're an adult. You learn how to distract yourself a little more, maybe. But it's hard to be patient. And this is a story, this covenant that God makes is a covenant of his patience. His patience with us. We've talked about covenants before. Covenants are not just a contract but they're a bond in blood, a familial, unbreakable relationship. And God is making this covenant because he is patient with us. And the whole point of this, this promise that he gives is to preserve us and to bring peace. So let's think about preservation. So Noah gets off the ark. And he, the first thing he does is, uh, is, is give a sacrifice to God. And then in 821, we, we hear about God's own thoughts. Did you notice that? God takes note of the sacrifice, and then he says to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Does that make much sense to you? That the reason God isn't going to curse the ground anymore is because evil can't be done away with. That way, at least. You remember, this is, this is alluding back to the very beginning of this whole story at the start of chapter 6, where God sees that every inclination of man's heart is only evil all the time. And this is a, a, just an abbreviated version of that, right? It is evil from their youth. It is it's reiterating that the same problem still exists. Which is why this thing that seems to be a, a contradiction, that I'm not going to curse because of evil, uh, makes some sense to us, right? Because what God is saying is, look, this was not about getting rid of a few bad apples. Sin can't be done away with that way. It is so bone deep in humanity. So at the core of who we are now, that you can't just merely start over with one family. That even that will not do the trick. 
That's not going to solve the problem. Now, that doesn't mean the flood was an exercise in futility. Let's be crystal clear about that, right? The people that drowned actually deserved to be judged. They were doing evil. We noted how violence in particular was highlighted. This was, this was a world in which evil was going unchecked. No, so real judgment was deserved and God meted it out. It also serves as an enduring warning to us. If we'll listen. It's an enduring warning. But as, as God, you know, he's, he's telling himself this, he thinks about this, he begins, as we get into chapter 9, to make this covenant with Noah. And he says to him, and this is very fascinating, he reiterates what he told Adam at the very beginning. So if you go back to Genesis 1, right after God says, I'm going to make man in my own image, he says this, uh, 128, he says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That, that little phrase is often called the cultural mandate, and you, and you hear it reiterated here. Again, notice verse, chapter, as we get into chapter 9, verse 1 and verse 7, quote from this passage, be fruitful and multiply. So you're supposed to do all the things that humanity was supposed to do in the beginning. But what's fascinating about this is we see that this has changed some because of our sinful nature. God is reiterating the same things that he told Adam, but they do have to be tweaked. And, there's, and you notice there are some differences along the way. So, for example, well, if we kind of unpack it a little bit, at the beginning, God said they were supposed to have dominion over the world and over the fish or the sea or all the animals. Here, that's again reiterated, but in verse 2, you see it framed as, you know, while you're supposed to have all those things, the fear of you will be in every animal. Now, I, I don't know how the animals acted between Adam and Noah, but I do know this. When Adam started his task in the garden, all the animals came to him to be named. When Noah was called, all the animals came to him to go into the ark. But now God is saying, it's not that way. And just as every, all these other aspects of, of your existence are frustrated by sin, so too even the animals of the world are going to run away from you. Kind of fascinating, huh? They get scattered, as it were. And to this day, even the most significant predators in the natural world still largely don't want anything to do with humans. Even though a grizzly bear has no reason <laughs> to be worried about you, <laughs> uh, they still don't, are largely going to avoid you if they can. Of course, some are going to go more out of their way than others, but... The point is still there, isn't it? The, so they're supposed to have dominion over these animals, and that gets frustrated. They're supposed to care for the world. right? Remember, we talked about having dominion over the world, but that looked like caring for a garden. But here, and we, we see this in verse 3, as you know, God is giving every animal over for them to eat. I don't know if they've been eating animals along the way yet or not. I have no idea. 
But God is at least sanctioning that. He's saying that that's, that's fine. But he's recognizing our propensity to abuse his creation. Because he's saying, well, you're going to be allowed to eat these animals, he's saying, but don't treat them morbidly. Don't act yourself like a wild animal, just kind of eating, just eating a wild animal as it comes. I mean, there, there is all the, you know, there's this stuff about uh, not eating the blood. And, you know, look, as you get later into the, the Old Testament, you get to the Mosaic Law which is a big, big complex of laws. And there's a bunch of food laws, but a lot of those food laws are grounded in this same concept, that you're not supposed to be morbid about the way you go about eating. Right? You're not supposed to be there uh, simply enjoying that you took the life of this animal. Um, now, I'm not saying this means, therefore, you have to have all your steaks well done. But you get the idea, right? You're supposed to... You're supposed to drain the blood of the animal because this is not, you are not a wild animal yourself. That's the, that's the core concept here. And you see this even reiterated, strangely, in the New Testament, uh, or it might seem strange to us at least. Uh, there's, a, there's a fascinating moment in the book of Acts. In chapter 15, see, first Peter and then Paul have, have been witnessing to Gentiles. And Gentiles are starting to believe and that causes kind of a problem for a church that was primarily Jewish when it started. Because they're not sure what to do with all of the symbolic and sacrificial aspects of the law in the Old Testament. What does this mean? Do they need to be circumcised in particular is kind of like the, the, the primary question. And there's a council of the church in chapter 15 of Acts. And they, they decide, they make clear, you know, look, the moral law is binding, but not the ceremonial law. I mean, just I'm summarizing here. But, one of the, but as, they, as they point out a few things to remind their new Gentile brethren about, they say three things. First, to abstain from things polluted by idols, right? Things that are associated with worshiping other gods. That makes sense. Uh, to abstain from sexual immorality. Again, the Greco-Roman world was a very immoral world. I mean, that, all make, that makes sense. Uh, that's grounded in creation as well, right? And then this, and, from, and to abstain from what has been strangled and from blood. And they're obviously thinking back to this passage because this also is right at the beginning, right? This is before Moses. This is before Abraham. This is before Israel is distinguished from anyone else. And he's saying to not be morbid in the way that we treat God's good creation. And look, I, we, we, we should be careful about this. It is not as if the Bible is just simply endorsing everything that is our kind of ecological agenda uh, in our own political system. But it's also clear that God is saying, treat my creation well. I made this. I made it very good, if you remember and that ought to give us pause, right? The, we are called to do what is good. And, I, you know, and again, I'm not saying it, what we kind of see as a political agenda, ecological agenda, is always the right thing. I don't think it necessarily is. I think there's a lot of questions. But it is true, right, that we can destroy the world many times over. 
in just a few minutes. We possess that kind of power. Now, thankfully, of course, that hasn't happened. But in many, many small ways, where we show our lack of care for what the good thing that God has made. And you see here that even as God is reiterating what the call of humanity is, he is recognizing our propensity to mess it up. And he's calling us away from that and to recognize and care for what he has made. And then finally, as you get into verses 5 and 6, we see that God reinstates government. I say reinstates because Adam was supposed to exercise government. He was supposed to discern good and evil. And his, the primary job he had to do was discern what was good and evil. And he blew it. It's not news to any of us. I'm sure we would have been wiser, right? Right. Um, because we're, we're so good at it right now. But, but as we've already said, this whole story began with God recognizing that evil was going unchecked. And especially, especially violence is singled out. That the, por- the, the, the portrait of the world that we get before the flood is one where violence is it's just free reign. And the powerful take what they want and do what they want to whomever they want. It's a kind of a nightmare scenario. And so as we get into verses 5 and 6, God builds on what he's talked about in, in respecting his creation and saying that's especially, especially important when it comes to you and to other humans. Remember I made you in my image? This is actually the last time that gets mentioned until the New Testament, <laughs> that, that concept. But God is reaffirming it, isn't he? Saying, remember, you were made in my image. So what's going on here is God is calling humanity to put a check on violence. This is the beginning of, you know, of, of government as we kind of understand it. Now, obviously, <laughs> obviously, this is not a system of government spelled out. Indeed, in the ancient world, uh, the only kinds of governments they knew were sort of village councils or monarchies. Uh, I'm not sure most of us want either of those systems. Uh, but here, discernment is, all, is needed, like it was for Adam, but also punishment. And you do see this reiterated in the New Testament in interesting ways. So when you go to Romans 13, you hear that gov- the governing authorities are God's servants and ministers, avengers against what is, what is evil, and they bear the sword. In 1 Peter 2.13, Peter says the authorities are meant to punish evil and to praise good. That's why God gave government. I don't know how this fell on the week before an election, but... It's true, right? The government is a good thing. It's from God. We shouldn't apologize about that, and we also shouldn't buy into any claim that it isn't. It is a good thing. It is meant to put a check on evil. We're told this here. We are told that again and again. 
where it's reiterated in the New Testament, now, I know you're waiting for the other shoe to drop. It is not as if the Bible is ignorant about people abusing their power. I mean, that, that, you see that over and over and over and over again in the Bible. What's fascinating is, uh, you even see that with Peter and Paul. You know, the two men that reiterated this point in the New Testament were, if, at least if church history is accurate, uh, were executed by Roman authorities because of their faith. Yet for all that, government's still a good thing. And I'm not going to get, we're not going to get into the quagmire this morning about whether capital punishment, what, what is this saying about capital punishment and, you know, whether or not it's sanctioning it or how often or any of that stuff. You see what it's doing, though. It is starting with the most serious crime as the paradigm, right, of taking another person's life. Every other question is derivative from that. It is about taking that kind of violence seriously. And every other question follows from it. It's not giving us a case law, just as it's not giving us a system of government. But it is telling us that we are called to put a check on evil. So again, it recognizes that there's problems, but for all that, it is still a good thing. So you get, the, you get the picture here, right? And all that we're called to do in this Noahic covenant, we are told to foster life, not destroy it. See, that was the problem. That was the problem, the destruction of life. So we're called to foster it, not to destroy it. And so that we, another way of describing this covenant with Noah is that it is a covenant of common grace. That's kind of how the theologians have distinguished it, which is to distinguish it from special grace, which is redemption. And God, particularly working in your life and mine, rather, this is the kind of thing that Jesus recognizes in the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 5 of Matthew, where he says, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Remember government abuse? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. This is God's common grace. It is meant to preserve his creation for everyone. We are called... God wants the world to be good and just for everyone, regardless of whether they're Christian or not. He wants his world to be cared for. And the call for Christians, this is so simple, though it hardly makes it easy, is to love. Love your enemies. Love those who persecute you. We're supposed to pursue justice. We're supposed to speak with moral clarity. But in all that, 
Or I should say we do all those things as an expression of love. And here is the thing. We often lose sight in our programs for justice or morality or other questions. We often lose sight of the goal of love. And this is the litmus test. How do you speak about those that you view as the problem? Do you speak in love? That's the real question. You see, there, we've had, <laughs> there's been a long history, especially through the 20th century, of, uh, of evangelicals in America coming up with big, grand strategies for cultural engagement. And, you know, I, there's something to that. There's something interesting to that. Uh, maybe at some point we can find some time to unpack some of those things as a, as a church and talk through some of that. This is not the time. Most of those emphasize critique or positioning ourselves over against others. But this is the litmus test. Do they teach us to love even our enemies? Because whatever our grand strategy is, if we have not love, we are nothing. So why does God do this? Why does he preserve the world? It's full of evil. We keep, keep recognizing that over and over again. Why would he do this? And this gets us to the second point, to peace. God's goal is peace. And it's fascinating that the very first thing Noah does when he gets out of the ark is sacrifice to God. And it is because God recognizes that sacrifice that he starts to think this way. Because God's goal is not to destroy the world, but to save it. I mean, why would he have saved Noah if he didn't have any other intention? If God is simply content to judge the world, he could have done it right then. He could have finished the job. But instead, the sacrifice is a reminder. Because what is a sacrifice? But it's one life for another. It is a substitute. In the case of this animal sacrifice, right, it is this animal's life instead of Noah's. That is not a satisfactory sacrifice. Or I should say, not a satisfactory substitution. <laughs> the sacrifice God recognizes, but it is only a temporary thing. And, you know, you can, you can read throughout the Old Testament, actually, in Psalm 40 and Psalm 50 and Psalm 51 and Isaiah 1, other places where God is clearly recognizing that the blood of goats and bulls, as Hebrews would put it, or by, by them it is impossible to take away sins. See, they're just a picture of what's needed. But God's peace requires a real substitution. And I don't know what Noah understood about this. Uh, 
Probably not a lot. But God clues him in, at least a little bit, by the sign that he gives. See, God sets up a reminder. Now, God is not like uh, Uncle Billy and It's a Wonderful Life. You know this character, the, the one that was tie, who would tie all the strings around his fingers and have multiple strings on each finger, and so, of course, he can't remember anything. Uh, he forgets the money, which causes the crisis that, you know, that is sort of the main action of, of It's a Wonderful Life. God is not like that. When God talks about remembering, it's not that he forgets the facts. It's not that he can't recall what is going on. But he's talking about memory in a different way. He's talking about what he focuses his attention on. You know, you know, you know this because there's a big difference. I, you know lots of facts buried in there, right? And one of, the, one of the fun things when you have kids is that, well, on the one hand, they discover facts that you didn't know about anything. Um, but also, you remember things too, right? That you had thought you had forgotten long ago. And you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What was that? I was getting quizzed on the way to school about some scientific terms the other day. Um, I didn't remember all of them. But I remembered more than I thought I would. But, the, uh, but that stuff's buried back there somewhere, right? And when the right question comes, you can kind of dig some, a lot of that up. This is, but there's a difference between that and focusing your attention on something. This is why people in business always want you to make up your, you know, your, year, your quarterly and your year-end goals, right? So you set something there as a focus. God is making his, I don't know how many thousand year goal, years goals, right? And right at the top of the list, the one main goal is to redeem us. It is to preserve us for the sake of redeeming us. Because the way the sign works, and this is, I, I, I hope you understood the imagery here and how it's described, but God talks about when he sets his bow in the sky. Now this is the same word for a bow and arrow for a battle bow, for a weapon. It's actually, even in our English, right, we've inherited this word in this strange compound of the rainbow. Right? This is the bow, but it's associated with rain, so we made it into a compound word. In Hebrew, it's the same word. God is hanging up his weapon. And now it is pointed to the sky. You see that? And that's where the rainbow always points, is up. The direction they always thought about when you think about God. Because what God is doing is setting up a reminder. He is setting up something to focus on, to remind himself of what it will take to accomplish redemption. What it will take to bring peace. It is not just a matter of getting rid of a few bad apples, but to undo sin, God will have to enter in. To be, for there to be a substitute that really mattered, God would have to become man. For there to be one that was actually legitimate, that actually satisfied the demands of his justice, for there to be one that was that actually partook in the evil of this world, 
not being evil himself, but enduring it. That's what it would take to fix us. Is Jesus entering in? To endure all the wickedness of the world. You know that's what the Gospels are about. I mean, they tell us a lot of other things. But it's no mistake that the last half to a third of each of the Gospels takes place in Jerusalem. In Jesus' last week. In the suffering and the mockery he endures. Of course, coming to a head on the cross. To its final conclusion. And it is there that he endures the judgment of God. Being cut off from the Father. Hell itself. That is Jesus entering in. That is the mystery of the gospel. That is why God is preserving this world. So that he will bring, can bring peace and not destroy it. This is the mystery into which the angels long to look. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, entering in on our behalf. And God is setting up a sign to remind him, to focus his attention constantly of what it will take. Not because he forgot, but as a sign and a promise to us of what he's focused on, what it will take for him to save us, to bring us peace. Now, this isn't to say, and we've got to be careful here, the goal of preservation is for peace, but that doesn't mean the world is a waste of time because, in fact, the consummation of this world, of God's very good creation, is bound up in the resurrection of Jesus. See, one way of understanding this, which would be wrong, is that, well, this world is just the place where we work all that out, and then we go to some other existence somewhere else. Instead, what the Bible tells us is that Jesus is raised from the dead so that we would be raised from the dead. And the vision at the end of the Bible is not of some ethereal existence, but it is a new heavens and a new earth. It is the world renewed and healed. And us, body and soul, renewed and healed. Which means that while the world is the theater in which God brings about his redemption, it is still meaningful every day, what we're doing. And of course, what's most meaningful as those who are redeemed is the way that we love others. You see, what he tells Noah is still just as applicable to us. It teaches us above everything else what it means to navigate day in and day out. It is to love God's world and most of all to love His image that He has made. And sometimes I wonder in our time if on the one hand some of us have forgotten to bear witness to Jesus altogether and we just don't want to talk about that. Again, I'm talking to those of us who are Christians. But on the other hand, if others of us have forgotten to love, and so we talk about it, 
And we talk about how no one cares or no one wants to listen, but why on earth would they want to listen? But what we're called to is love because God first loved us. And the rainbow is the sign of the depth of his love. The rainbow teaches us to see the world in a different way, with new eyes. That God, even day in and day out, has all of his focus, all of his attention bent on delivering us from sin and evil. But God is patient. He is patient because he doesn't just want to redeem you or me, but he has much grander plans than all that. So, be patient. The thing that's hardest about patience is loving other people. You can endure. You can endure many things, you know, when in, in survival training in the military, right? They teach you, if you know how long something is, you can endure it. You have to set ben- little benchmarks along the way, right? Because if you know how, something long, how long something is, you can probably endure it. It's one thing to endure. It's another thing to do it well. But know this. God has done all things well. Jesus has bought you with his blood, and you can't endure. Though we don't know what the next day holds, what the next year holds, you can endure. Because God has loved you. And it is not a burden, but a privilege to love his world and those that he's made. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would give us wisdom to be patient, to love others well. Lord, we are so distracted often by thinking about what kinds of strategies we should be behind, what we should back. And yet the simple truth that is so easy to forget as we are called to love everyone that you've made. And there is no greater love than to know Jesus. So would you remind all of us of that? For those who are uncertain, Lord, would you give them clarity that they might believe and know? We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.